I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm currently a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, August 5th, 2022. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the state's concluding its case in the sentencing hearing for Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz, Also, the compensatory damages facing Alex Jones for statements he made claiming the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax. Plus, we'll cover the NFL's decision to appeal Deshaun Watson's suspension, the antitrust lawsuit leveled by several pro golfers against the PGA Tour, and Brittany Griner's nine-year sentence for drug smuggling in a Russian court. Today, we are excited to be joined by Brian Buckmeyer host of Law & Crime Daily, who is also a practicing New York City public defender and ABC legal correspondent. Brian, welcome. Josh, thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Before we get into these stories, and I know um, you have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts on these cases. Tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice. Yeah. So uh, as you said, I'm the host, I'm a host at Law and Crime Network. I actually have a nationally syndicated show uh, called Law and Crime Daily. And so we have a daily show Monday to Friday where we do a lot like what you're doing, um, where we have these discussions. Where we bring on experts, former police, uh, detectives, SWAT, um, practicing attorneys. So we can really dive deep into some of these uh, hard hitting stories that we see in the true crime world. Uh, and as you said, I'm also a practicing public defender in New York City. My practice goes anywhere from driving with a suspended license to homicides. Uh, I kind of specialize in use of force and possession cases. A lot of self-defense is what I typically dive into. 
and uh, I'd like to go to trial. And as you said, lastly, just to kind of wrap it up, I'm also a legal correspondent for ABC. I've covered the Ahmaud Arbery trial where I got to interview Ahmaud Arbery's mother. I know we're going to kind of touch on this a little bit later, but I also covered the Breonna Taylor case where I actually got to walk through Breonna Taylor's home after the jury had done a walkthrough as well, something you don't typically see. And of course, I covered the Derek Chauvin trial from opening statements to the verdict uh, in Minnesota. So I've been in the courtrooms at as a kind of correspondent, but has also been there as a defense attorney. Fantastic. So all of this is right in your wheelhouse. <clears throat> so let's get, jump right in. Let's talk about the yep. death penalty hearing continues for jurors tasked with sentencing Nicholas Cruz for the Parkland, Florida high school shooting. Cruz, 23 years old, pled guilty in October of 2021 to 17 counts of first-degree murder and 17 counts of first-degree attempted murder for his role in the attack at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that left 14 students and three staff members dead in 2018. The jurors have seen footage from the shooting, emotional testimony from victims and witnesses, as well as troubling online comments and mass shooting research conducted by Cruz. As the state wrapped up its case, the jurors were bused to the site of the massacre in Parkland. The building has been sealed off since the massacre, reportedly, and this is fascinating to me, still stained with blood from the victims. The jurors retraced the steps of Cruz uh, in the crime scene and were allowed to witness the shooting's devastating effects. The Bower County School District plans to demolish the building after the prosecutors approve. So you have some experience with this kind of stuff, a crime scene visit by uh, jurors or or you did one yourself. Uh, what kind of impact, Brian, do you think this visit will have on the jury? So it, it, it's massive. Typically yeah. what we see in, in juries or, or, or cases is you get to see photographs, video recordings. And yes, uh, the old saying, a picture can say a thousand words, uh, but when you're actually walking through it, and, and again, I bring up the Breonna Taylor uh, because I was there when the jury walked in and then I was fortunate enough that the landlord allowed me to walk in. You, you can feel the air. When you walk in a room and you know that someone died there, you know that someone died in a, in a very heinous way or a very public and large way, it's one thing, and I'm talking about one individual, Breonna Taylor. I cannot imagine the jurors walking through Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School, uh, that location where they know so many people have died. And, and to your point, they didn't touch that building since. They, I think what happened is they built another building um, close to it where the students continued to go to school and they shut it down. So the way it was after the Parkland shooter shot up the place is the way it is now minus maybe a little bit of scrubbing. So they get to put their hands close to, or maybe even if the judge allows them, touch the bullet holes. They get to see where these students who said that were shot at ran down the holes. It, it brings a lot more than just seeing a piece of paper held up by a prosecutor. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It is, is, it's too bad that we don't have kind of the resources to do this more often with juries because there really is nothing, like you said, that can replicate that feeling the, the temperature inside of, of, of the rooms, the, the smell, the dust in the air, all of this detail that can bring to, to life the horribleness of what occurred uh, on that day. I, and it is important for, for listeners to understand how rare these things are. I have only experienced one in my entire career. When I first started in the DA's office, I was a law clerk for the prosecution of Phil Spector for the murder of Lana Clarkson. And we went out 
to his home and viewed the area where the shooting took place. And it has a tremendous impact because they get to actually see it. Like you said, the bullet holes. And in this case, even more remarkable, there perhaps is even bloodstains still on the floor, broken windows and glass. It, it, it I can only imagine it, this will just further drive home the point of what a devastating and destructive day that was. Yeah. That all being said, do you have any fears that this will have a, um, more of a prejudicial effect uh, that might outweigh in kind of probative value to the jurors and that that could create problems on appeal? Yeah, so this is when I say that my my uh, my public defender senses start tingling because mm -hmm. while I can talk about the Parkland school shooter as, as a human being, as a man, and say, hey, I want the jurors in there, I want them... To, to, to see the environment because we learn through all of our senses, not just by observing with our eyes, but as a public defender and someone who wants to see finality in the, in this case, I have to ask the question of relevance. And that's the question that every judge is tasked with. What's the relevance of allowing the jury to walk through uh, this scene? And that's where you get the question of more probative than prejudicial. Anything that is presented to the jury must have the utmost and the highest probative value. What are they going to learn from this? What are they going to take away from this and not be prejudiced? And when we talk about walking through the school, emotions will flare. It's going to happen. We're humans, regardless of what instructions the judge gives you. I think everyone is going to feel the weight of being in that room. And the question becomes, is that weight probative? Or is it prejudicial? Because we don't want prejudice to be the reason why someone is convicted. That's not the system in which we believe or that we should have here in the United States. And I think about it here, my question becomes, was there another way to show the jury the devastation of that place without bringing them there? Here, the judge said, no. We're gonna let them go through the halls. We're gonna let them see that because the, the probative value is not outweighed by the prejudicial value. The problem that I think is gonna happen in every defense attorney and probably yourself as a former prosecutor say, this is gonna be brought up on appeal. This is going to be one of the reasons why people dislike the death penalty because if he is given the death penalty, this I think could be front and center for appeal where, this, where the defense attorneys say, this is far too prejudicial. We need another judge to, to review this. And if that judge agrees, we're going back to square one and we're going to have another jury, another sentencing phase where this doesn't happen. And so it raises the question, is this going to be an issue where this comes back up? Yeah, no, you did an excellent job of explaining all of that. It, it's certainly something that the defense in this case has been concentrating a lot on. They, all of their objections seem to be going towards, is, is this more prejudicial than probative? And does this evidence go towards factors in aggravation? And if it doesn't, why are we listening to it? And I, I remember one objection in particular that I actually thought they they were had some sound footing on was there was footage shown of uh, the shooter after after the shooting ordering a, an icy at a, at a sandwich shop, and the prosecution's um, reasoning for bringing this in was that well, listen, this is all part of the events of that day, and it's important to know where he went afterwards and before he was arrested and the defense argument was that doesn't serve any pur purpose as far as aggravation and all this does is kind of continue to show uh you know uh in inflame the jury as far as look at how cavalier he looks and I, I i agree with you i think i think 
the prosecution is obviously zealously kind of advocating on their on behalf of their position. But I think there should be some concern towards making sure this sticks and isn't reversed on appeal and we don't have to go through something like this again. Uh, that all being said, do you think the prosecution, I know you've been following this closely, has done enough uh, to ask for that ultimate pe penalty of the death penalty in this case? So a few things. I want to touch on something, the, and I smirked because prosecutors always like to add more because their argument is, is to complete the narrative, that we have to complete the narrative, and that's why we have to bring it in. Um, but to answer your question, I think the argument for the death penalty, while I am not a major supporter of it because there are so many flaws, I think at this point it's academic. I think the prosecution has checked off every box. I think whether you have a JD like myself, or you practice for eight years, or you're your first year of law school, you've never looked at a case before. I think if you look at the factors of aggravating circumstances and you look at this case, you would say A plus for the prosecution. They've hit every one of them. And I almost have to look at this list to go through it. Knowingly created a great risk of death to many. Um, cold, calculated, and premeditated without moral or legal justification, especially heinous and atrocious and cruel. Those are just some of them. But as I said, that's an academic conversation because we see it played out when the Parkland school shooter, and I don't refer to him by his name, because he, he said that he wanted, through the evidence that we've seen so far, he wanted to be known as the mass shooter of 2018. He etched swastikas into the gun. He made racist and homophobic um, showings in his, in his research and everything. He wanted to be known for this. And when I call him the Parkland school shooter, that is the one little thing that I can do to take away from him that notoriety of not letting his name pass my lips because it is clear based on his actions that he fits these aggravating circumstances in a way that is academic that you could probably teach a, a first year law class as to what aggravating circumstances are. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's clearly, it, it, you know, putting aside the politics of the death penalty, if you agree with it or not, if it is a, a law that's on the books, this is clearly the type of case that would fall into that category. I agree with you. So it's gonna be interesting to see what the defense does uh, beginning their case. They've even withheld their opening statement. So we'll, we'll soon find out how they expect to present this to uh, the jury to try to unwind or add some perspective to what we've heard over the past few weeks that it's just devastating um, testimony and evidence that has been presented. So we'll keep an eye on this case. Let's turn now to Alex Jones. Jurors have awarded Sandy Hook victims $4.1 after Alex Jones claimed the shooting was a hoax. This is out of Austin, Texas. Alex Jones was ordered to pay more than $4 million in compensatory damages to the parents of a six-year-old killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting after claims made by the InfoWars host that the shooting was a hoax. The 2012 Newtown, Connecticut shooting left 20 children and six teachers dead. Jones Media Company, Free Speech Systems, which owns InfoWars, filed for bankruptcy, and Jones stated any award above $2 million would quote-unquote sink us. Jones saw the lawsuit as an attack on his First Amendment rights, but was forced to concede publicly during the trial that the, the attack was 100% real, expressing remorse for lying about it. The parents sought $150 million in compensation for the alleged defamation and intentional inflection of emotional distress. Jurors will now uh, hear further information about Jones's finances and will decide how much Jones will pay in punitive damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, another child killed in the shooting.
So just off the bat, Brian, what are your thoughts on this verdict? Were you surprised by the amount too high, too low? I actually thought, so let me go back a little. When we talk about compensatory damages, there's also, you got to remember the potential for punitive damages. So right. we're not quite yet, there yet as to how much he's going to owe altogether. So as I think just a compensatory, I thought, uh, okay, let, let, it makes sense because what you often see is a compensatory is oftentimes a, a real world calculation of damages. And so the jury is looking at both the current and past harm of these two parents. I know they have different last names, uh, Mr. Heslin and Miss Lewis. Uh, I don't think they're together anymore. And so they're looking at the different damages just from calculation. Um, how much were you harmed, whatever it may be. But punitive damages, that can be anything because that's about punishing. And so the compensatory damages seem small to me, but I would not be surprised that it's made up into punitive damages because of I mean, really, for lack of a better term, just the arrogance and the bravada uh, that uh, came with this case with Alec Jones when he came in and even when he took the stand. I can see the compensatory damages being as small as they are now, but the punitive damages really sticking it to him. And that's when we look at the entire damages as a whole and say, all right, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Everybody, it seems like most people's reaction to this is, oh, it's not that much money. My reaction was kind of the same as yours. Actually, it is when you consider, like you said, this is just really kind of out of out of pocket loss that they've suffered from the antics that he's put on from his testimony. We're going to talk a little bit about something pretty surprising that took place in his testimony. But from all of that, I don't think he's made any fans with these jurors. And if punitive damages is about sending a message, I agree with you. I think we could see really huge numbers in this phase of the trial. But I want to talk about something that took place. At at during his cross examination, yeah. the the plaintiff's attorney revealed that they had access to his entire phone and that there were text messages in there regarding Sandy Hook. And this became important because he had said that he had searched his phone and didn't find any text messages. Now, the the actual cross-examination the the point that was being made is not all that thrilling because it's like you said you looked while well, we found them i guess you didn't look or you didn't look that hard putting that aside it was an incredible moment for kind of the the theatrics of the trial and i thought the plaintiff's attorney did a wonderful job of playing all of that up he was you know do you understand what perjury is do, do you understand your fifth amendment rights and making this sound like this was this horrible thing that he had committed here but the point i wanted to ask you about is what what kind of trouble could his attorneys, Jones's attorneys, be in for one, this inadvertent disclosure of all of this information, and then two, the way that they didn't seem to try to address it with the court beforehand. They didn't put up any objections about privilege beforehand. And it seems as though they didn't even inform their client for about 12 days because he seemed blindsided by the whole thing. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah. So the, the thing is, uh, when it comes with lawyers, whether for better or for worse, you've really got to mess up um, to have any kind of serious repercussions. And, and this, while for any client, they would not be happy with you. I would not expect a, a very large 
paycheck for this defense attorney from Alex Jones. I don't think we're going to see the repercussions that people are thinking about, like ineffective assistance of counsel or maybe his bar license being uh, removed. I mean, think about Rudy Giuliani, like what happened, what had to happen to him uh, for his bar license in New York to be removed. That does this case doesn't get to that point. I think this is going to be if I'm using the analogy a stern talking to in a timeout for a few minutes for the defense attorney. And maybe he's not going to be picking up as many clients in the future. I think for the most part, his pocketbook is going to get hit because who's going to call him to, to represent him? He obviously, Alex Jones is not a very beloved person uh, for this case uh, for many people in the country. Of course, he has his followers. He has the people who believe that this was a hoax. And so maybe there's some notoriety for this attorney in picking up this case. In this move of him messing up this much, I think that notoriety that he was hoping to get in representing Alex Jones to then further his career is kaput. Because this is, this is for lack of a better term, Bush League. Like, yeah. you, you don't do this. Yeah. I, you're talking about conspiracy theory, I'm, I'm going to go one step further, and I'm fully saying that this is me just kind of getting into the weeds. But it, with Alex Jones, with this type of a character, deal, he's, a, he's a ringleader, right? He's a circus master. There was a part of me that almost wondered if this was manufactured. If they, if they created this blunder, knowing that the plaintiff's attorney would hop on it so that they could bring this, this Hail Mary of a mistrial uh, um, argument that was thrown out by the judge. I, I, I want to see if you agree with the judge's thoughts on that. But the judge basically said, listen, this is probably stuff that should have been disclosed anyways. And, and the fact that you did it inadvertently and now you're trying to make a mistrial out of the whole thing, I'm not buying it. I think the judge just kind of wants to be done with this case. Um, but I almost wonder, was this all just part of their their game plan? And I, I don't expect you to comment on that, but I do want to hear your thoughts on the on the mistrial uh, ruling by the judge. I think the judge was absolutely right. And this is why I say that we got to remember where we are and why we're here. This is like a, a sentencing phase. We're not asking the question right. of guilt or innocence anymore. And the reason why we're not asking that question is because Alex Jones defaulted by not um, abiding by discovery rules. And so to your point, this may have been litigated and probably should have been turned over for the exact reason why this attorney was able to impeach him. You got to be able to have the information by which you're going to cross-examine, especially the defendant. So you can say, hey, do you have this in your phone? Did you have communications about Sandy Hook? Did you know that this was a hoax? Did you not? That information should have been turned over. It, it probably would have. I can't, as I sit here now, think of an argument as to why it wouldn't have been turned over. And the only reason why it wasn't turned over is because of Alex Jones. That's why he got the default judgment. That's why we're here only asking the question of how much money he's going to give and not guilt or innocence. And so if this does get appealed, I don't know if this lawyer is going to send the wrong motion to the wrong judge. I don't know how his emails work. Um, I think there's a strong argument for what's called harmless error that they're going to say, this is harmless error. This is not something to overturn. And we're just going to push on forward because if this was done the right way, we would have, the, the other side would have had this, these text messages anyways. I, I completely agree. And, and like I said at the, the beginning of speaking about this topic, end of the day, the fact that the, the real thing he was caught up on was, did you search your phone for text messages? Yes, I did. I didn't find anything. Well, we found some. And so I, I agree with you. That's probably harmless error. That's not going to completely turn the ship in this case, which was already going downhill for, for him anyway. So 
we will keep watching to see how uh, things turn out for him in punitives because I, I think we could see some big numbers. Let's talk about uh, briefly some other stories making the news. First of all, the NFL is going to appeal Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension. Judge Sue Robinson handed Deshaun a six-game suspension for his violation of league policies on Monday, August 1st. She noted that Watson's, quote, pattern of behavior was egregious, but she said the pat- the behavior was nonviolent sexual conduct, which led to her decision to suspend Watson for six games. Watson was not given any additional fines. The NFL, however, argued that Watson should be suspended for the entirety of the 2022-23 season. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell designated New Jersey attorney Peter Harvey to hear the NFL's appeal of Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension for violating the league's personal conduct policy for reported unwanted sexual advances during massage sessions. Watson was not criminally indicted on any of these charges. Um, I know you've been following this, Brian. Uh, tell us, first of all, were you surprised by the six-game suspension? Do you support the NFL trying to go after him for an entire season? Where do you land on all of this? So let, let, me, let, me, let me say this. So I, I'm a, of Caribbean descent. I'm born in Canada. So my sport is the other football, soccer. But my wife is a, <laughs> is a major football fan. She's a cheesehead. And so oftentimes we talk about this and she doesn't like what I say because I can kind of see both sides. Okay. This is a sexual assault case, right? Horrible. Don't get right. me wrong. 24 uh, complainants or victims, however you want to use the word, horrible. I'm not mitigating it in any way, shape, or form. But if you talk to someone like you or I, who have probably seen some really horrible rape cases of children, uh, uh, of violent rapes, where you see bloodied and badgered and stuff like that, if we're talking about the scale of sexual assault, this is on the low end. I'm not trying to mitigate. I'm not trying to say it's not bad. I'm just saying you and I have been doing this for almost about 10 years. If we look at all the rapes and sexual assaults we've seen, scale of one to 10, this is probably a solid two or three. Right. However, it's Deshaun Watson. It's the NFL. They look the other way. I think when the judge looked at this, the judge looked at this as a seasoned judge, someone who has seen many rapes, many sexual assaults and said, if the NFL is asking for a year suspension and that's what they're asking for, I'm looking at the allegations that were not indicted. There's no probable cause. No one testified in a grand jury. No criminal charges have been brought up. And the only thing that I think really is strongly in the favor of a higher suspension is the sheer volume and the consistency of the allegations. And so when I put all that together, I didn't think that a year suspension was going to happen. Six games, I thought was pretty low. I thought we would have been talking about half the season. I thought we'd been talking about somewhere around there. And so that's what I was a little surprised at, but I knew this was not gonna be a year. To your second point, I'm not surprised about the NFL um, wanting to appeal this. Not because the NFL cares, and this is me putting on the tinfoil hat and not really knowing. If you tell me that the NFL, jump, jump right in, join me. <laughs> if you want to tell me that the NFL cares about women and sexual harassment claims, then I've got a mountain apartment in Manhattan, New York, that I would love to sell you. I don't think that they care in the way that everyone else does because of the history that I've seen of sexual assault and domestic violence within the NFL. But I think this was the time that they needed to stand tall and say, we are going to speak on behalf of these 24 women initially. So I think because of the, the persona and the view, they had to appeal. And I think that's why they're doing it. And it makes sense because six game suspension for this, it's not even a slap on the wrist. That's a, 
hey, take a paid leave and, and have a margarita. We'll see you with enough time that you might be able to actually make a run uh, for the Super Bowl, even though I don't think the Browns are going to make it. But th- th- this is nothing. The NFL had to. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting take uh, on this. As you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, if any under other profession, someone had been accused by 20 plus women of sexual assault, they'd lose their job. I mean, I, I don't even think it would be a question, but you're right. The NFL wants to keep the talent, yet they want to look like they're seriously addressing this. So it, it is not shocking that they say an, an entire season because we're taking this whole thing seriously. And then as we're talking to it, what an arbitrary number six games is. Like you said, that's not even half a season. It it absolutely, you know, some guys miss six games for injury and they come back and, and make it to the playoffs. So it, it is so bizarre the way this is all played out um and 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 we'll see if the nfl gets their 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 wishes i think what they want to do is like you said look like they're being tough and then still have this talent come back to the nfl albeit playing for the browns uh in in a year from now let's keep it in the world of sports and turn to another story that i i'm really finding fascinating um phil mickelson is among 10 other live golfers. This is a new golf league filing an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour, and they filed out of San Francisco, California. The 11 golfers filed an antitrust lawsuit versus the PGA Tour Wednesday, August 3rd. Three of the golfers are also seeking a temporary restraining order that would allow them to play in the PGA Tour's FedEx Cup playoffs, which are going to begin next week. Live Golf has been enticing players to join the Saudi Arabian-backed golf league with massive prize fees, large appearance fees, and guaranteed contracts. We heard this recently. Tiger Woods reportedly turned down an offer in the neighborhood of 700 to 800 million to join Live Golf. The PGA has suspended at least 17 players playing in Live Golf. PGA Tour bylaws prohibit uh, members from appearing in other events without permission of the commissioner. Brian, what are your thoughts? Is this a valid antitrust issue? On its face, yes. There are some arguments that need to be made. But yes, when we talk about antitrust, I would say throw out that word and we just talk about anti-competition. America is built on the concept that we need competition, whether it's you're, you're, you're buying cell phone services and you want multiple providers to be able to vie for who has the best price, or we're talking about here, sports. Because you've got to remember, it, it's weird, but uh, golfers or, or PGA golfers, they're actually independent contractors, right? right. They, they go from different golf tournaments to play and they can kind of sell themselves as, hey, you want me in your tournament. Your tournament doesn't look good if not having, if you're not going to have Phil Mickelson in there, if you're not going to have Tiger Woods, you'll want me there. But what's happening now, Liv comes up and says, you know what? We want to create another environment. We want to have this flashy game. We want to throw all this money at them from the Saudi Arabian backyard, which is probably another issue in of itself that's probably going to be investigated down the line, but we'll save that for another podcast. Um, but now they're creating competition. The PGA doesn't seem to like that, and their actions appear on face value to be that of anti-competition, and that's why we're here now. Yeah, I agree with you. The PGA has been the only show in town for decades, and they've gotten fat and lazy, and they've, like any institution, you know, gotten greedy and 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 complacent, 
And Liv came along and is throwing tons of money at these guys. And they're changing it up and they're adding, you know, there's guaranteed money and they're adding, making team play and all this kind of stuff. And they're trying to, like you said, make the sport, you know, sport is entertainment. And so therefore they want to make sure that the audience is, is, is enthusiastic and younger. And they've come up with a, a different, perhaps better product than the PGA. And I think this is all kind of nonsense that the PGA is not allowing these players to, to play in that league. And I think it may even backfire on them because there's a lot of money to be made. I mean, Tiger Woods, I don't know what kind of money Tiger Woods has got, but he's got enough to have turned down about $700 million to play in this league. That's just fascinating to me. But if they've got that kind of money to go after one player, I I think you're going to see a lot of players who don't care if they play for the PGA again. Like you said, they're independent contractors. they're, They're at the end of the day, they want to make as much money as they can pay, playing the sport that they love. And if that means they play for one league and are banned from the other league, so be it. I realize there's all the tradition and the, the trophies and the prestige that the PGA has, but they're going to lose a lot of that if they start losing these big-time players. You when agree? I heard about that, yeah. When I heard about that Tiger Woods turned down that much money, I, I'm a, I am or was an All-American soccer player. My son was just born. I was looking at the soccer ball that I bought him, and I was like, maybe I'm going to go. Because if you can turn down this much money, maybe soccer's exactly. not talking Exactly. Exactly. That um, is so funny. But I, I think the competition aspect that you're talking about is what's going to create problems. But like I said, as most people hate when they talk to lawyers, the answer is maybe. And that comes to the idea of, what is competition within golf? The PGA has been the only um, dance, so to speak, that people can go to. And so is it that they control all of golf? Is that the market we're talking about? Or are we right. talking about sports? Because if the market is sports, then they're competing against the NFL, the NBA, the, uh, the I'm Canadian, I'm throwing the CFL. They're competing against all of them. And so they're not controlling a market in of itself but of course, Liv is going to say, no, 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 we're not talking about all other sports. We're talking about golf. And it really depends on how they frame that argument and which argument the judge uh, ultimately decides is the best one or the one they want to apply when considering what this antitrust, anti-competition concept is. Yeah, really interesting point you make there about it's not, it, is it sport? Is it golf? Well, we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. It's a, it, Like I said, it's it's a story that I usually wouldn't be so interested in, but I'm fascinated by it. Finally, we have to turn to Moscow because we have some developments uh, with the WNBA star Brittany Griner has been sentenced in a Russian court to nine years for drug smuggling. These charges stem from vape cartridges containing cannabis being found in her lug- luggage. Griner, who has been detained since February, pled guilty to bringing the cartridges containing less than one gram of cannabis oil into the country. There have been reports of a prisoner swap supposed uh, proposed by the State Department that would bring Griner and a former Marine Paul Whelan in exchange for Russian arms dealer Victor Bout. Whelan uh, has been held by Russia for alleged espionage since 2018. Victor Bout, nicknamed the Merchant of Death, is reportedly one of the world's most prolific arms dealers and is serving a federal sentence after a 2011 conviction for counts including conspiring to kill American citizens. Okay, uh, let's first talk about the length of this sentence. Is this all 
a leverage play by the Russians? Yes and no. And, and the reason why I would say yes is because they now get to come to the table and say nine years for two things. One, I believe the prosecution asked for nine and a half. She could have done more than that. I think she could have done 10 years. Now they're going to come across and say, well, well we were lenient. We, we could have given her the max and, and we did it. So they're going to try to play that card, not the strongest card in the world, but I'll, I'll, they'll use it. The other part they'll try to use is, like you said, this is a trade. They're going to say, hey, Victor Bout is doing many years. Bernie Griner is doing many years. Uh, Paul Whelan is doing many years. Everyone's doing many years. So why not just do the, the swap? But as I've kind of been saying tongue in cheek, yeah, Brittany Griner is a shooter and so is Victor Bout. But those are two different types of shooting. That's a very different uh, situation. And so I don't think there's equity in that. But the Russians are not going to talk about equity. They're going to try to put that nine years and make it seem like it's all the same. And so I think that's that's the leverage they're going to use. But it's not the most intelligent argument. Yeah. Do you think, and this is a problem I've had for, with this, is I understand the media's fascination with it because it is an American. She's a WNBA star. But did all of the attention, the public outrage, you had LeBron James uh, commenting on it. Did that increase the difficulty for the State Department to, to try to get her out, to try to make a swap with her? Because now the Russians, like you said, they're, they're, they're negotiating for a killer, for the, the merchant of death in exchange for her. I, I You know, you, you got to just objectively see this as kind of a lopsided trade do you think that that the all the kind of um media and public attention worked against her her, her best interests in this case i i'm going back and forth on that and i'm and i'm gonna have to say yes and and the reason why i say yes is because um i think Inc. and I'm not, I'm not a big Putin fan. I dislike him for, for so many reasons, but he's playing chess while I think the Biden administration is trying to figure out which one is the horsey and which one is the bishop. Um, and I think for, for Putin, what he's doing is he's saying, one, it's 2022. And then what, three months is a midterm election. Yeah. The Biden administration ran on pro-women, pro-LGBTQ, um, that we we've got Brittany Griner who fits both of those categories and is a prominent athlete. Putin knows what he's doing. This yeah. is who President Biden said that he's running for, that he's looking to protect. And so, as we all talk about this, Biden and uh, Putin is saying, "Hey, Biden's people are going to press him. They're going to talk about the platform he ran on. They're going to talk about uh, the issues that he that he raised, and he's going to have his feet to the fire in terms of releasing Brittany Griner. And so he's using that momentum." to get Victor Bout because he's in the middle of a war with Ukraine and and Ukraine to their credit is beating them back in, in, in many places. We, we never thought that Ukraine would have the strength, the courage and, and the ability that they have. And so much credit to all those people there who are fighting tooth and nail for their rights. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm there with them in any capacity that I can with my hearts and prayers. But for Putin, he's saying, I need my merchant of death. I need my guy out there making those purchases, making those moves so I can do what I want to do in Ukraine. And so he's leveraging the political position that Biden is in with the notoriety of, of Brittany Griner to try to further his war. And he, I think it's as plain as day. 
And I think the Biden administration is trying to also tag in Paul Whelan because he's a former Marine. He's a United States um, 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 citizen. And he's there for, for what I would consider garbage espionage charges. And so this is far less legal and far more political as yeah. two, two men are trying to save face for their countries. Yeah, I agree with you. But for Brittany's sake, I hope they work this all out because end of the day, I don't, you know, nine years for the amount of the small amount of cannabis that she had. I realize every country's got the right to make the the laws that they do, but it's unfortunate because I feel like if she wasn't this political pawn and she was just Joe Citizen, you never would have seen anything like this. So we hope it works out for her. And I agree with you on that as well. And, and I, I, I think she's being used a, as a pawn. I think that's the travesty in this case. Yeah. Renee Griner and Paul Whelan are being used as pawns for something that they have no connection with. And they're the ones that are being harmed the greatest while these two countries are battling this out. Yeah, yeah, it's really sad. Brian, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can go to the Law and Crime Network uh, website. I'm there on Law and Crime Daily. As I said, I am the host. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, um, the Buck, B-U-C-K-E-S-Q, like the Buckmeyer attorney. Uh, I'm always posting there, putting up notes. You may not see me on Law and Crime Daily for a few weeks because, like I said, my son was just born. He's a first uh, for my wife and I, so I'm going to be gone for about a few weeks, but I will be back. You'll see me in the courtrooms giving live updates for major trials throughout the country. Fantastic. And congratulations again on the the new wonderful addition to your family. Uh, And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.